Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago, Chicago, I will show you around. I love it, bet your bottom dollar you lose the blues in Chicago, Chicago, the town that Billy Sunday couldn't shut down. Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm your host, Perry Metz. Now, the demise of the American newspaper has been widely reported at least 10 or 20 times in recent years. Today's guest is an editor who invested heavily in investigative reporting and doubled down on local journalism at a time when many papers uh, were not doing so. Gerald Kern is senior vice president and editor of the Chicago Tribune. He's been in that position since 2008 joined the paper originally in 1991, served in various positions, including deputy managing editor and associate editor. Welcome. I'd say, uh, first, what is the prognosis for the American newspaper? Uh, Well, thanks, Perry. I think um, we're in the midst of a transformation that is not likely to end anytime soon. I think that the form of the newspaper is changing and changing rapidly, but I believe that uh, there always will be a need for what we do and that we will uh, navigate through this period of time. It may look a lot different. It already does. Uh, it will surely you know, change a great deal more, but I think that we'll be around. Your strategy was an interesting one. Investigative reporting is notoriously expensive and requires a lot of time and patience. How has that played out? I think it's uh, played out very well. I think um, we've always done uh, good investigative reporting, but we had a moment of truth, a moment of crisis uh, in 2008 when um, our company filed for bankruptcy. And we had to make a decision then about what we were going to be great at, what we were going to stand out for, and also what the public, what our readers valued most. And we really uh, circled up around investigative reporting. And we made a commitment to doing more of it and doing it and making that the hallmark of the of the Chicago Tribune. Since then, we've emerged from Chapter 11. Uh, things are, are, are fine now. But clearly, the reader uh, looks to us to really perform a public service by holding power, holding authority accountable. And that is something that, you know, newspapers in general uh, can do very well. I, I want to pursue that, but you raised the bankruptcy. Yeah. And, and for our listeners, uh, the billionaire investor Sam Zell had bought the paper and planned to make a number of changes, brought in a number of outside executives, many with radio experience. Yeah. And uh, there was a bit of a culture clash, I think, at least from things I've read, between what I'd call their freewheeling style and the more traditional attitudes of people who had been at the paper for some time. How did that work? Well, and yes, a little bit of background. Uh, in 2007, uh, Sam Zell, billionaire, successful real estate mogul, uh, bought the Tribune Company and in a highly leveraged and controversial mm-hmm. takeover. That was on the eve of the you know, uh, Great Recession, the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression, and 
the long story short, the company couldn't make the payments on the debt that uh, Zell had put on the company. It wasn't that the Chicago Tribune or the other papers in the group weren't viable. They were profitable during that period of time. It was just a leveraged buyout that went bad because of the economy. There was this, uh, you know, uh, I guess culture clash. I, I would say that because there was the forces, what I call the forces of history, were so mm. strong we had to change um, anyway. We, meeting the newspaper business, the newsroom, we had to quickly adapt to changes that were happening in the larger society, especially as it relates to technology and the way that people wanted to receive their news. So there was already that kind of change that we had to navigate. I think the differences in outlook and style between what we did and the way the new owners wanted to do uh, added to the friction during that period of time, but it didn't change the fundamental reality, and that was we were at an inflection point. We had to change regardless, frankly, of who owned us. For anybody who's uh, following the timeline, uh, let me note that the Great Recession, takeover by a billionaire investor, change in executive leadership, selling off of assets, and the enormous pressure on the newspaper industry to change. Through all that, there seems to have been one executive who held on at the Trib and uh, rose to the top spot, even through all of that crisis. And on a personal level, I wonder how you spoke to yourself through that time of enormous change? Well, I would say that there were others that uh, also uh, were committed to seeing us through. Our publisher, Tony Hunter, being one of them, has been enormously supportive, um, and I appreciate that greatly. I guess it. I, I try to answer it this way. I uh, came to uh, be editor at a time of uh, enormous peril for the Chicago Tribune, and there wasn't a day that I didn't feel the weight of history as well. This is a iconic uh, newspaper that whose history is entwined with that of the the American story. Uh, the Tribune was um, a force behind electing Abraham Lincoln mm-hmm. uh, president in 1860 at a time of existential crisis for the United States. And the legacy and lore and history of this paper loomed large. And this was a, a time of, uh, as you as you say, of, of pressure from all sides. I think that in retrospect, we look at it now, and that was a time to respond to that. And it was a time of soul searching for the whole newspaper staff. And I think it helped us come together and answer the question, what is our purpose? What do we what are we here to do? Everybody knew how to do their jobs and do them well, and uh, the legacy of the the Chicago Tribune speaks to that. But I think there wasn't a clear, concise way of expressing what our purpose was, what our mission was. And at a time when there was nothing but doubt about, you know, a lot of our readers worried whether we would be able to continue, it was important to be able to articulate that. And that's where we came up with you know, shorthand for that, six principles. And at the top of the list was standing up for the community through our investigative reporting and through opinion leadership and really being, you know, a force for honesty and transparency in government 
and holding our leaders and institutions accountable during that time. And I think that was a focal point for the staff. I think that and I know that that resonated with our readers and they rallied rallied behind us in that period of time. And it helped us sort of get back on our feet. Some would say that the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois more than contribute in uh, giving you things to do investigative reporting on. Yes. I think, um, you know, so the history of the city and Illinois is quite well known. I mean, this is a place, there's been a culture of corruption that has gripped politics and government for a century. Uh, Four out of the last six governors have gone to prison, so have scores of other lesser officials. There's a, you know, uh, rich and storied history of corruption in Chicago. And I'm not saying that everybody is corrupt. They're not. Mm -hmm. But that was a legacy. And and we saw that as, um, uh, you know, a way to, you know, to explain to people what we did. We exposed that. We change that and we perform public service that way. And I think that we've dedicated ourselves to it and it's been very gratifying to see the changes that we've been able to get and also the way that people have come to us for that reason. And as a result, I think we've grown our digital uh, audience uh, uh, from that and I think it's the pathway uh, forward for us. Some observers say that the race for the American newspaper is whether you can add digital subscribers faster or as fast as you lose print subscribers. Is that a fair statement? Yes, I think it, in general it is. It's um, uh, We're making this transition. We're going to become primarily a digital medium. Uh, and that's not that's a choice that consumers are making. It's been very clear that uh, consumers want to receive their news through digital, especially mobile devices. Just last year, we saw this watershed moment where when you look at our digital audience, you see for the first time that more people come to us through a mobile phone than they do from uh, a desktop, and that gap is only going to um, increase. I think the digital audience values the same things that we've been providing for a print audience, but the rhythm and expectations and behaviors of that audience are are different. So I think that we are rapidly making that transition and changing the way that we organize ourselves, the way we produce news, and also our attention to um, the way the audience responds to that. I think one of the paradoxes now is I think we have the largest audience we've ever had Mm -hmm. in the 168-year history of the Chicago Tribune. We don't have an audience problem. The industry has a monetization problem, a revenue problem, and we're working through that, but it's it's going to take some time. Welcome to my world at public radio. Yeah. Uh, we, too, have a large audience, but monetizing is uh, is an open question. I've read that uh, in one way you have characterized it as uh, aiming your audience toward the website for breaking news and pulling them to the printed copy for uh, analysis, uh, perspective, context. Yes, yeah, so we... We understand the value of breaking news, the urgency of the first reports on 
just about everything that's happening from crime to sports to politics. And that's a that's a huge utilitarian draw. So we do spend a lot of time and energy and focus on that. That becomes kind of the top of the funnel in mm-hmm. terms of bringing in uh, audience. We also publish digitally uh, all of our investigative reporting and more in-depth analytical pieces, and those do quite well, too, with that audience. The experience, though, uh, of an audience coming to our digital platforms as opposed to one coming to the printed newspaper is different. And as a result, we try to, you know, edit them uh, differently in that regard. But, you know, clearly we're, we're making a choice towards uh, succeeding digitally because I think that's where the growth is. You know, digital is growing. Print is not. We have to, you know, grow that, grow that audience by serving it especially well. How difficult a shift was that in your thinking as someone who grew up with cutting and pasting actual pieces of paper and using real glue? So, yes, I think, and I think it's uh, difficult for some people to make that transition. Again, going back to that point of standing there at the moment of crisis and understanding what we have to do in order to change. And when I say change, I'm saying we need to change the way that we reach the reader, reach the audience. We don't don't change the values, mm-hmm. right? The, you know, the core journalistic values you know, represented in those principles that we outlined, that stays the same. So it was a case of having to change yourself from the inside out, change the institution from the inside out, which I think is the most difficult thing for either an individual or an institution to do, because it requires a consciousness about uh, change in the in the outer world and then also being able to look honestly at the way you do things. So one of the things we did is we were publishing websites as a byproduct of print newspaper production for about 15 years. And the more we became conscious of that, the more we saw that the whole organization was built it was built as a print news organization informed by almost two centuries of tradition and practice. Much of it you you weren't aware of. You couldn't possibly from the inside be aware of it. Mm-hmm. So we had to break it down and understand how we would have to change that. So we decided to reverse that process, produce a digital news report and a print newspaper as a byproduct of that. Mm-hmm. And we said we were going to do that. And that was an aspirational statement at first. And then over a period of some years, we actually made it happen. That's still unfolding right now. But, you know, we upended the reporting and editing operation to uh, reflect that. And I think that the growth of, the, of our website has shown that that, that, has, that has worked. So, um, again... Like I said, a transformation that will never end. That's what we're doing. One example of what you're talking about is the the Tribune's Blue Sky, which I think is a digital-only product for the tech community, the entrepreneurs of the Chicago area. Yes, that's – you know, when you look at audience and audience behavior, there's certainly – we're all members of – many different audiences. And sometimes it's a mass audience that's interested in similar kinds of things. I think the breaking news audience is 
one of those. But within it are these subsets, and it's important for us to figure out how to serve them in a way that's additive to the, the, to the audience. And so we saw certainly coming out of the Great Recession that a new kind of economy was uh, you know, starting to sprout. Uh, in Chicago and elsewhere as well. And that was sort of the entrepreneurial tech startup scene. Uh, We saw it um, taking off in Chicago. We could see that a lot of young people, you know, were looking at their careers in terms of starting businesses. And so we, you know, we're experimenting with how to create what we call content verticals aimed at certain smaller groups. And we wanted to be in on that story. And we wanted to be able to tell the story of the emerging new economy. So we created Blue Sky Innovation, which is all about the startups. Uh, We have a number of incubators in the city of Chicago. 1871 is the name of one of the biggest. So we created this uh, staff and this essentially website to serve that. And we broke it off from the rest of the news operation. It's connected, but it's operating on its own and its mm-hmm. own rhythms and to do that. And I think that's been a learning experience for us about how to grow new audiences that may not be coming to the Tribune uh, for more traditional reasons. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Profiles on WFIU. Our guest today is Gerald Kern, Senior Vice President and Editor of the Chicago Tribune. I'm your host, Perry Metz. Talking more about uh, content verticals, you also have uh, one called Red Eye, which is aimed at the under 40 crowd. Yes, Red Eye was, um, is a publication. It's a free newspaper. It's also got a website, but it really started as a free newspaper for young urban professionals that uh, were not you know, necessarily readers of the Chicago the traditional Tribune. The blue paper, paper is right. what we call it from uh, history. And so we created Red Eye, which was um, all about, you know, uh, nightlife, uh, music scene, you know, sort of a young person's take on on what's happening in Chicago. That was um, like 12 years ago we started that. And at one point it grew to be the, since it's a free uh, paper, it was the largest circulation uh, daily newspaper inside the city of mm-hmm. Chicago. More copies of it circulated than the Chicago Tribune. Uh, that was sort of our first foray into that. It was really not digital. Uh, so in recent times, we've created verticals that are primarily uh, digital. Blue Sky is an example of one. Another one is Theater Loop. So, and I was, uh, you know, talking about this to a group earlier, and that was, you know, some audiences are small. 
theater is one of those, but it's very passionate and it's very knowledgeable about mm -hmm. theater. Chicago is one of the three top theater cities in the world, London, New York, and Chicago. And so we created this vertical called Theater Loop, which is really aimed at theater goers. And that has been very popular. And we, you have to subscribe to be able to get it, but it's built around uh, our expertise on that. And I think it, that and Blue Sky and a couple of others we've done, I think, are beginning to map out a pathway to how you create perhaps many verticals that add up to collectively a very large and engaged audience. It fascinates me. As a kid, I, I wrote a letter uh, suggesting uh, movie reviews for children. I got a wonderful response I still have telling me that they had discussed it. And it would lead to crazy things like having special sections for the elderly and for young people and for people interested in cars and that this would just be unthinkable. And now – it seems to be not just thinkable, but uh, perhaps the wave of success. Yes, you were just ahead of your time. <laughs> and we were behind the times. Uh -huh. So, you know, a lot of this has to do with our uh, technology's ability, you know, capacity to give us a chance to serve audiences, to get down to the individual level. You have to pick your places for that. But I think it's a it's definitely the way we're going to, you know, have to create media in the future to, to be relevant. I'm struck by how your choices were drawn from part of what makes Chicago tick. Uh, yes, uh, young urban professionals could probably be done in any major city, but theater and the entrepreneur, the, the startup culture – those are uniquely uh, Chicago, and you didn't pick things that uh, were formulaic or or just uh, any niche. This was based in the community. Yes, you have. I think you. We had to recognize that we had to be great at some things. In order to be great at anything, we had to make some choices about what those were going to be. The idea that the newspaper would be this general source of all news and information worked for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. But then I think the uh, technology allowed there to be many players in this field that could specialize. So while we're still a broad a mass medium in, in many ways, we too had to make choices. We had to be known for excellence uh, in certain things. And if you think that you can be excellent in everything and you actually try to do it, you will be excellent in nothing. So we chose investigative reporting. Clearly there was a, you know, uh, an environment, political environment in Chicago and Illinois that made that a uh, value to readers. Um, we also chose opinion and commentary. Opinion leadership became very important. We have a a great editorial page editor in Bruce Dold, and we expanded uh, that effort and uh, decided to be the leading citizen for Chicago and Illinois. And that's been very gratifying to see. When you look at digital audience data, uh, among those pay paying subscribers, people that pay to look at our newspaper and in, in, in online and in digital, you see that opinion is the number two draw. It's the second largest uh, 
audience of our paying subscribers. That's kind of unheard of, mm-hmm. uh, and it shows the value of that and why people turn to us. Theater is another one that distinguish, distinguishes the city, and we can be uh, you know, known for that. And I would say I would add to that our sports uh, coverage. Chicago is a huge uh, sports town. You know, depending on the stock of each team, at Bears or right. Cubs, you know, naturally draw uh, an audience. We need to be known for that as well. So that's the rationale that went into it. And we can see from the growth of the audience and the response to the stories that we have that that's working. One of the uh, one of the things that that Sam Zell did was to sell off the Cubs. Uh, and I wonder, was there a, a, a sense of losing pieces of the uh, culture, the identity of the place as WGN and, and the, uh, the Cubs went their separate ways? Well, yeah, Sam Zell sold the Cubs. I think the, the Cubs in itself are an interesting history. We, the company bought the Chicago Cubs, I think, in 1982. And it was bought to be essentially programming for WGN. And it was for many years, and it worked as part of a broadcast strategy. Interestingly, um, it it created hardships for uh, the newspaper staff, for the sports reporters, who had to contend with not only are you biased towards the Cubs Mm -hmm. versus the White Sox, Mm -hmm. but then, you know, the idea that somehow or another the corporate ownership of the Cubs would govern or shape or direct the editorial departments, the news department's coverage of the Cubs, which, of course, never happened. So in some ways, we were glad to see it Mm -hmm. go its different direction because it certainly removed that false notion, you know, from the equation. What a fascinating uh, corporate overarching theory of all these pieces acting on each other. WGN, of course, was world's greatest newspaper, right. a, a reverence to the Trib, and they were each to feed the other, it seems. Yes, you know, the WGN, I mean, uh, Colonel Robert McCormick, who owned the paper, and he was the sort of the William Randolph Hearst yes. of the Midwest, was a pioneer. Um, uh, he helped originate radio and television from the floors of the Chicago Tribune, and WGN Radio and WGN TV were those creations. And then they, you know, naturally became successful and took on a life of their own. And and while we had a relationship with them, you know, we each had our own needs. The company in 2000, uh, you know, a little more than a year ago, so in 2014, uh, split. Uh, what was once the broadcasting division became Tribune Media, and the newspapers and the websites became Tribune Publishing. And at that point, we separated, you know, from WGN. So mm-hmm. WGN is, you know, belongs to a different company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that empire that Colonel McCormick created, it changes and evolves, and it's not that much different than what happens to geopolitical empires, right? They rise, mm-hmm. sometimes they fall, sometimes they, you know, split apart, sometimes they regroup and reform. That's just the way of the world. As you describe the content verticals, the specialization, is that where the paper is headed as you develop expertise and reputations in entrepreneurship, in sports, in 
with the young urban professional in theater, does there come a time when the TRIB itself splits into separate entities serving each of these communities? I don't think that the Chicago Tribune as a news source goes away. I think it uh, evolves, and it has evolved. I think that there's always a need for an authoritative news source that spans the region and can provide you know, real context and also has enough muscle, enough power to be able to do the kind of re- groundbreaking reporting that it takes money, resources, and expertise to do. So I don't see that we we, we just become a collection of 25 or 30 or 40 verticals. Mm-hmm. I think there's always going to be that core that uh, the Chicago Tribune represents, represents, but I think that there will be a growth in the portfolio. I think there might be someday 20, 30, mm-hmm. 40 verticals that uh, will be associated somehow with Uh, the Chicago Tribune brand. Some might not. I think that it's hard to it's hard to know for sure. I think we are doing the the world is changing so fast um, and the world that we operate is changing so fast that, you know, we have to be as smart as we can about seeing into the future. But we also have to be very quick and adaptive about changing to conditions that are right in front of us. There are many things that you cannot predict and you won't predict, but you have to respond to. And that's what we're doing with those verticals. We've had successes and we've launched some that weren't successful, um, but we learn from it. And, uh, you know, so we're definitely on the cutting edge. And that's the reason why I think about Blue Sky being valuable to us because it gave us uh, a chance to experiment in the startup world, Mm -hmm. really, and learn not only report on it, but to learn something about it at the same time. What was uh, one of the efforts that didn't succeed? There are a number of sections and things that we have launched that have, you know, gone out. You know, we launched lots of things. Back in the day, we launched a fax newspaper. Here's one. Yes. When faxes were the leading edge technology, mm-hmm. we cre- we came up with a newspaper that would be in the form of a fax, and you'd sign up for it, and we'd dial in the numbers, and we'd send it out. So it sounded like a good idea yes. at the time, but, you know, of course, you know, conditions overtook it. What replaced it was the newsletter, the digital newsletter, mm-hmm. actually. And we produce a number of those, and we send those out to our our readers. We've also created something. We've also gone back to the future recently. We have a replica edition, you know, and what that means is that it's a uh, it's the newspaper, but it, you can read it on your laptop or, fo- or phone. It's mm-hmm. the replica of the paper. Um, a lot of people like that. They like the hierarchy. They like the you know fact that it's been curated for them. So we launched a replica edition, uh, afternoon edition. Way back in the day, we would publish multiple print editions during the day and distribute them. And one of them was, I think we called it the Green Streak, and it would go out to the commuter audience, uh, commuter train uh, people, in the late afternoon with the stock market report and so forth. So we've, in in many ways, recreated that, but it's in a digital format that we send out to subscribers that want it. So there is an afternoon Tribune, <laughs> and it's a tabloid, no less. 
That's true. It's unusual to have both yeah. a broadsheet and a tabloid. We also, for a time, published. Uh, uh, this is a good. I think this is an example of one that we tried. We learned from it, and we discontinued our broadsheet print edition. Uh, largely home ad- uh, delivered, not much uh, newsstand. Our uh, print competitor, the Sun Times, is uh, kind of the reverse, mostly newsstand, tabloid. We created, I think, in 2009, a tabloid version of the Chicago Tribune, Mm -hmm. and we put it out on the newsstands, and we published that for almost three years. So there would be a broadsheet Chicago Tribune, and then there would be a, a tabloid next to it, uh, that we were launching as competition to the Sun-Times. I think that in the end, we th- thought that it wasn't making enough inroads. Mm. You know, the br- Sun-Times had brand value. So we chalked it up to a learning experience, and it actually helped us, I think, with the replica editions that we would eventually launch. I'd like to turn a minute to uh, talk about the trends in the country. One of the the major forces in journalism has been the rise of opinionated media, Mm -hmm. where people go to be reinforced in what they already believe. How much do you think that's uh, a passing fancy? And how much is it a threat to the traditional idea of a newspaper, as uh, I would have said, an edited, but curated is the new word, version of the news? Yes, we've Definitely have seen that. Uh, I think it comes from, I think there's some interesting observations to make about that. I think it's, you know, come because the audience can be fragmented. Um, It's easy to uh, reach uh, audiences through different kinds of vehicles aimed at them. Technology has allowed that to happen. And I think that uh, some news media have seen that as an opportunity. I do think it is it is a disturbing phenomenon that there are significant segments of the of the public that is not interested in facts, not interested in considering, you know, a full range of ideas. They just want to see their ideas validated. Mm-hmm. And I think that there have been uh, there are media that are designed to do that, and they're frankly their business model is based on that. I'm not saying that that hasn't always existed in some form because I think it has, but it's so much easier to act upon now because of the way that you know you can reach people through mm-hmm. technology. It's you know technology, tr- Twitter, social media. You know, fragmentation, cable, uh, everything from every website now, you can find a different flavor for it. I think on that is a positive thing. More information coming from more sources is a positive thing. But sort of the reverse side is that you can kind of live in this cocoon and only hear and see what you want to see. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, um, there's a danger in that. So it really, I think the society depends on Uh, people who are open-minded that will weigh the facts and consider the options and be open to changing, people be open to changing their mind when faced with, you know, compelling facts and arguments. But to do that, you have to listen to opinions you don't like from people you can't stand about 
topics on which you disagree. And it seems there there is a, a shrinking number of folks willing to do that. So we, I think, are going to – I think we're finding that out. It's hard for me to know whether it's shrinking or not. It's hard for me to know whether it's always existed and now we're able to see it better than we uh, once did. I remain an optimist that most people want to live a better life and want to be part of something larger than themselves and as a result will be considerate of the facts and and be a participant in the society and in the democracy. But I think it, it certainly is heightened our consciousness about it and the importance of our role to be this to be fair right and to be tr- uh, pursue the facts and to and to present them uh, to people in a way without an agenda you know we we can have a point of view on our editorial pages and we can make arguments for that that's fine but to present them without an agenda in our news reporting is crucial and i still think that there are a lot of uh, news organizations that are committed that uh, to that idea and, and do that. I certainly uh, have enjoyed over the years, I, I would read uh, the very conservative views of the Indianapolis Star, the very liberal views of the Courier-Journal in Louisville. And I found that enlightening because sometimes I would hear things or see things in a, in a light I, I hadn't before. But one of the things that seems to be happening now is more talking at people and less engaging people. And I wonder, one of the things that concerns me, but I'm asking you as an observer in a major metropolitan area, is there a threat to how well democracy runs when people don't have access to the free debate of ideas? Well, I think people have greater access to the free debate of ideas and the exchange and facts than they ever have in their in our history. The question is whether they would want whether they want to pursue it mm-hmm. and to what extent. You know, you look at the current presidential campaign and uh, you see this fragmentation and of the uh, electorate um, on the on the basis of the rhetoric being espoused by the candidates and at the same time you see tremendous uh, voter turnout which i think is a very healthy thing people have been engaged in the debate and they have been moved to go to the polls and make their views known i think that generally that's a very healthy sign um, and I think it'll get sorted out. Um, and I think these issues will get sorted out over a period of time and we will get to the to answers. It's a messy process. No question about it. I think that in that, though, in that noise and that messiness, um, you know, we will reach consensus about some ideas that enable us to move forward. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU, our guest today is Gerald Kern, editor of the Chicago Tribune. I'm Perry Metz, your host.
Now, I can't let this interview uh, end without talking to you a little bit about your student days. You're an IU alum and uh, former Daily Student staffer. Uh, can you tell us what you did at the Daily Student? Yes. Um, I uh, recently spoke to the staff over there, and uh, it was, I think, the first time that I could been back and talk to the staff mm-hmm. since I graduated in 1971, which they find it very difficult to <laughs> believe that somebody's that old, right? The experience I got at the Daily Student, I I think, was the best experience I got. It was formative. And I was a latecomer to journalism and the you know reporting game and i recognized that i needed to i needed to get some real experience so i mm-hmm. went to the daily student and uh one of the f- first things that i did i had met a professor uh in one of my classes um i think it's i would say he was the one professor that i found uh inspirational or one of them that i found inspirational and he was um he had written a book that de- that uh, criticized the findings of the Warren Commission. So this was, you know, back in 1970, 71. Right. So the idea wasn't brand new, but it was still pretty new. And he had written this book. It was unpublished, uh, where he just took the evidence and pointed out all the uh, holes in it. I got that, and I pitched... Hey, let's do. I have a five-part series I could offer on this, mm-hmm. not knowing anything about it and how to, let alone how to report. But I wrote that series, and the editors editors thought it was a pretty good thing. And there it was, strung across the top of the Indiana Daily Student, my first work, and I was hooked from that time mm-hmm. on. So I did uh, as much reporting as I could in my you know senior year and my. Uh, graduate year, and that really got me started. I'm really grateful to the Daily Student and to Indiana University for giving me that chance. Do you remember who that professor was? Yes, there was a professor named Joseph Schneider. I don't know what happened to him. You know, he was uh, pretty old at the time mm-hmm. that I knew him, so... Of course, everybody looked old when you were 20. Yes, but yeah, that's true. I don't know what happened to him. I should find out. But that's what got me started. And it's, you know, you think about it. When you go through life, it's chance encounters sometimes Mm -hmm. that send your life in different directions. Had I not met Joseph Snyder and uh, gotten to know him and gotten to know his book and then connected with the daily student, you know, one's life could be entirely different. It's kind of a humbling thought. You say that the education was formative, but... You were taught a number of skills that are no longer practiced in the profession. Well, but I think the main skills are there are many new techniques today and you, that, that one has to master. You have to know, uh, you know a little bit about video. You have to know how to you know, work digital media, social media, and so forth. But all those are just tools and techniques. At the heart of it is being able to see what a story and be able to tell it to another person. That storytelling capability has is as old as humankind. And the needs that come from are satisfied by storytelling are are the same as they've always been. People need to know uh you know uh, what will keep them safe, where the dangers are. They need to know you know who 
is trying to influence them and why. Um, they know, want to know how to make themselves better. Uh, they just want to share a great story that reveals something about the, the, rea- the truth in life. Mm-hmm. That's uh, the same. Uh, so the advice for you know, journalists, aspiring journalists today is learn how to do that. The application of it through those different, different tools and techniques will change and will continue to change, but that won't. So the mechanics uh, may may change, but the the heart of what's taught, uh, the good story, the facts, the understanding, and the context don't change. They don't change. I think that's eternal, and I think there's something that is uh, uh, assuring about that, reassuring about that. We perform a service, do a job to meet some fundamental human needs, and that's what journalism is at the at the heart of it and telling the truth uh, well ascertaining the truth from the facts as closely as we can that's got value forever one of those mechanics that has changed is the advent of social media I was uh, looking at your Twitter account I noticed that you resist the temptation of some editors to only tweet about things that come from their publication. Yeah. You actually give uh, your followers things of that may be of interest to them drawn from a variety of sources. Yes, yeah, so I don't hold up myself as an exemplar of <laughs> social media. I'm still learning my way on it. But I think the honest use of it is you're an observer of the world and you have some you want to, you know, share what the Chicago Tribune offers, but you also re- I also read other things, and I find value in them, and I uh, tweet them as well. You know, f- many people on our staff are far more accustomed and, and acclimated and better at it than I am, uh, but I, you know, I participate, and I think it's really important. When you think about it, the advent of social media is, I think, a really profound change for media in general. It's enabled everybody to connect with everybody else in the world on an individual basis. It's a true network. And so what we find is that the audience really has become the medium itself by virtue of the value that people on social media add to the content by their decision to share it with uh, with friends in some ways it's a you know in some ways it's a recommendation um, as well so social media and its usage is integral now to I think our success as journalists we need to attract an audience attract a crowd and lead it uh, you know we need to um, we have to do more than God's work mm-hmm. we have to actually know our audience and serve it on almost a personal level. Well, journalism, as you describe it, uh, in helping people find their way, how to stay safe, how to, how to survive, how to thrive, is in many ways a, a noble calling. I wonder about the, the curation aspect. In the, in the old days, the newspaper was the primary means of communication in a community. People didn't have opportunity other than to gather at a club and see a hundred people or at a church service, they really couldn't get a sense of the community except by picking up yeah. their newspaper. Will the the newspaper uh, evolve into 
both original content and curated content? Oh, I think it already has. If you think about the particular brand, in this case, Chicago Tribune, decides to be great at a handful of things and then commits to doing that. But we also, you know, provide content, provide uh, journalism and uh, news and information and opinion from a variety of different sources. And um, our ability to do that makes for a much more satisfying and enriching experience. So we draw upon others who have expertise that we don't, um, and we offer that to our readers. I think that's already happening and will become more and more important. I think the thing that we can do also is is we're not just the bulletin board, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we provide context, uh, you know, and, you know, context between events. And we hold it together in some way by providing a view of the world. In this case, it would be for, for the Chicago area. That's, um, I think, really valuable. We think that that holds huge value for uh, readers and and that will be continue to be one of the th- reasons why somebody would come to us to be able to view the world and not just necessarily look at their Twitter feed. Aiming toward that ideal, I think you know that Indiana University this year has combined its uh, telecommunications, journalism, film studies, parts of communication and culture into a media school. Uh, what advice do you have? on what a good media school should be doing these days? Well, I think that the, I, I know there was some controversy about, you know, the journalism school is a standalone school, comes to an end, it gets merged with, you know, gets merged with filmmaking and, uh, you know, telecommunications and then is part of the School of Arts and Sciences. I guess I would say I understand the impetus for that we're experiencing it too we have to change in order to match what the audience needs and what mm-hmm. the society needs so i th- i think it's uh, completely understandable i would say at the heart of it at, i guess a couple things one is on the storytelling point i made earlier cultivate storytellers and i don't mean just people telling good stories but t- t- uh, people telling stories that need to be told and how effectively you can do that, ranging from investigative reporting and the use of documents to narrative storytelling. And then be able to train people to do it in different modes. Certainly, uh, you know, narrative uh, storytelling is one thing uh, in in words, but so is it in terms of film, uh, in terms of, you know, video, uh, in lots of different modes. So get your students so they are comfortable or develop uh, talents in storytelling in different modes. I think at the heart of it, though, I would hope that I see that this is at the core of the values of the media school, that there's a public service mission there, that we tell stories and we do uh, journalism because there's a greater good that comes from it and that the and that the society needs that done. I think if it does those things, uh, it'll be continue to be hugely valuable and will contribute to, you know, our society. That gets at uh, some of the controversy. There was a debate uh, equating journalism with the physical newspaper. Yeah. And I think you're drawing a distinction 
between the principles of journalism, which may be uh, articulated and performed through a variety of media. Yes. I think the business, the profession has at times been confused that, you know, that we are the medium. We're not just the medium. I'm not sure we're the medium at all. Mm-hmm. The lifeblood of the profession, of the enterprise, is the relationship with the audience. That's the way you interact with the audience has changed. It will continue to change. You know, and that's what we have to keep in mind. Those are just channels. It's communing with the audience that matters. And I think it's taken us a time to learn that. There seems to have been a lot of experimentation uh, about how to tell stories and draw people to them. And you've talked today about some of the experiments that the Trib has done. The New York Times recently did one with Google Cardboard, inserting the uh, virtual reality glasses uh, delivered along with the paper and then giving you an opportunity to stick your smartphone in and fold the cardboard around them, and to see a a virtual presentation, almost 360 degrees. How much of that do you think is gimmickry, and how much is it experimentation toward new ways of of telling? Oh, I think it's experimentation, and I applaud it. Who knows whether that will be a major part of the way people want to receive their news. It could be. I think we have to – we don't know the answers, and we have to experiment and try different things. I think one of the wraps on the uh, profession has been that it wasn't open to new things, that it was not willing to experiment, that it was sort of locked into a tried-and-true way of doing things. And I think it hurt us. Uh, So I'm really glad to see uh, the openness and experimentation on that. We need to do more you know, we really need to do more of it. And, you know, when I've talked about this on various occasions to the staff, you know, we need to separate our convictions about what journalism should try to accomplish from the conventions, which are the way that we do it. You know, there isn't a value system embodied in the printed page any more than it's embodied in you know, a video um, mm-hmm. production. The convictions are embodied in the in the profession and what it's trying to do, and those are just channels. How do you get feedback from the audience? Other than, than emails and tweets, uh, what is the TRIB's method to know what the audience is thinking? A lot of different ways. Um, you know, certainly hearing from readers directly and and however they want to communicate with us. Letters, you know, snail mail, email, telephone calls, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, social media has been a great um, listening post. Uh, we can hear immediately from people what they think about what we're doing about certain stories. That's been great. We also monitor... Uh, digital audience metrics, mm-hmm. and we pay a lot of attention to that. We don't make our decisions strictly on that, clearly, but it informs it, and so we can watch that in real time. And then we also created a uh, live programming effort. Uh, we called it Trib Nation, and it was basically journalism on stage. And what we did was convene a, a series of events, public events, and they could be on 
politics. We would we would host debates on one end. We would bring in newsmakers. We'd have panels on subjects that were interested. People were interested, and we draw you know anywhere from two hundred to fifteen hundred people for those events, and then we would hold receptions afterwards. And it was a it was a great way to convene the audience in real you know in the flesh and talk to them about things. I found that really helpful in staying in touch. So uh, we do all those things. I've been speaking today with Gerald Kern, editor of the Chicago Tribune, an IU alumnus and a recipient of a Distinguished Alumni Award from the School of Journalism. Thank you for being with us. This is Perry Metz for Profiles. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. Profiles.